Jeremiah 8. If you're joining us in progress in our study in Jeremiah, let's go all the way back. Let's, let's remember where we are. Children of Israel, yeah, the children of Israel take refuge in Egypt. Back, 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 way back. Because famine, right? 400 years later, God calls them out and raises up Moses to lead them out. They get all the way to the border of Canaan, the border of the promised land. They freak out. God says, okay, do some laps around the desert. So they do 40 years of laps around the desert until the generation dies off. Joshua and his wingman Caleb lead them into the land. They battle into the land. God says, hey, everywhere you set your foot, I'm going to give to you. When they believe them, things work out well. When they don't believe them, things work out not so well. They subdue not all of the land that God appointed to them, but a portion of it. And then we have the time of the judges, where Israel isn't under one leader, but a number of regional leaders and their lives and their ministries are highlighted in the book of Judges. But you know the story, Israel thinks that they know better than God, and they say, we want a king, and God says, you don't really want a king. And they say, no, we want a king. So God gives them a king, and his name was Saul. And things didn't turn out well. So after Saul, God gives them a man after his own heart, gives them David. And that takes us to round numbers, let's call it 1000 BC. After David comes Solomon, really wise man, one small problem, he ignores God's instruction not to multiply wives. He's got a lot of them and a lot of not wives. And some of those wives import from the various lands that Solomon imported them, imported their deities along with them. And so all kinds of false worship, idol worship, worship to the Baals and the Asterisks and the Moleks rises up. Well, after Solomon's death, the kingdom splits. No one person can hold the kingdom together. So the southern kingdom, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, split off to the south. And they're okay they're for a while because they have the temple. They have Jerusalem. The ten tribes to the north they go to the zoo almost immediately. And then we have a couple centuries of history where the north has an unbroken series of bad kings. There are no good kings in the northern kingdom. And so by 722 BC, God says, okay, you're not going to get better. There's no possible future history for you where you repent. And so he allows them to be judged by the Assyrian army. The South hangs on a little bit longer because they have some good kings who promote God and promote worship of God and, and the, the priests of the Lord find favor under them. And then they have some really bad kings. So things go back and forth for a while, but gradually more back than forth until we pick up the story in Jeremiah. It's around 600 AD or so. And when Jeremiah begins his ministry. It's shortly after the death of the last good king of Judah, shortly after the death of Josiah. When God, who's been speaking words of caution, exhorting the people to repentance for a couple centuries now, begins to turn up the heat through the prophet Jeremiah. 
begins to pour out really, really strong words anticipating the imminent judgment if Judah doesn't change their ways. So that's for those of you joining us in progress. That's a little bit of a background to the book that, that we're turning to tonight, Jeremiah chapter 8. We ventured just a little bit in last week because the beginning, the first three verses of chapter 8 are the conclusion of what we read in chapter 7, what's commonly known as the temple sermon. Why is it called the temple sermon? Because of chapter 7, verse 4, where God repeats, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, that's all you can talk about. And what we discussed last week was how that southern kingdom of Judah had gotten almost superstitious about the temple. They weren't really worshiping God. They were worshiping the temple of God. They weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping the sacrifices and the offerings and the feasts and the ordinances of God. They liked the, the ritual, but they lost the relationship. And God, through Jeremiah last week, was calling Judah to repentance, genuine repentance. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just phone it in. Just don't do the things that look right, but care about the things that God cares about. Justice, mercy, humility, and oh yeah, put away all your stinking false gods. Well, continuing this evening, verse 4. Moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? We're moving into a new message here. Temple sermon is over, and what follows in chapters 8, 9, and 10 are a series of other sermons on a similar theme. Jeremiah is a collection of sermons or messages preached, pronounced by Jeremiah. They were organized after the fact. They were put together in this book either by Jeremiah or by his secretary, Baruch, at the end of Jeremiah's ministry, maybe even after his death, if it was Baruch doing it. And so they're not always in chronological order. A lot of times, and this is one of those times, they're in thematic order. So 7, 8, 9, and 10 are a series of messages not all given at the same time and place. They weren't you know, a sermon series given all in a row, but different messages given at different times and places, but all around one theme. That's why they're clustered together here. And the theme is, you're a bunch of stupid hypocrites especially around worship. Will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Why, verse 5, has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? No, everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into the battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows their appointed times, and the turtle dove, the swift, the swallow, observe the time of their coming, but my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. <clears throat> Sometimes my daughter will look at me and kind of cock her head and say, why are you like this? And if you know her, you can imagine her saying that. Why, why, are, why are you that way? That's God's question for Judah. Why are you being like this? You're like, the first analogy he uses, you're like a horse with blinders on, stampeding into battle. You can't see anything else but the battle ahead, and you don't care that it's going to lead to your destruction. You're just charging headlong. 
And that's not natural, God is saying. When people fall, what's the natural thing to do? They get up. The seasons change. That was the second metaphor. When the seasons change, the birds migrate. All the different birds, the swallow and the tern and all of them that he lists there, they all know that it's time to fly south. God's people, when they fall, should know to get up. When God's people realize they're heading headlong into destruction, should turn around. When God's people figure out that they've turned away from God, they should turn back. But instead, God says, you're doubling down. The more, the more I tell you to, to change your ways, the more I tell you to, to turn away, is the faster you go towards destruction. Why are you like this? And of course, God answers his own question, verse 5. He says, they hold fast to deceit. They're like that because they bought into the lies. What lies? The lies that the world tells them? The lies that Satan tells them? The lies that their own flesh tells them? And they refuse to let go of the lies. They like the lies better than they like the truth. And the people who are supposed to be helping them aren't helping them. Verse 8, the scribes, those entrusted with interpreting the law, aren't doing them any favors. How can you say, verse 8, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us. Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. And as a result, the wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. Why? They've rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Apparently, the scribes were interpreting the law in a way that let them redefine sin. And every generation tries that, right? Let's trade divine wisdom and exchange it for human wisdom. God didn't really mean what he said, because that's not what I would mean. God didn't really say this, even though it's there in black and white, because I would never say that. Well, and when you trade human wisdom or trade divine wisdom away and replace it with human wisdom, what do you expect? Verse 10, this is what they get. Whatever they expect, this is what they get. God says, because you're doing this, I'm going to give your wives to others and your fields to those who will inherit them. Because from the least, even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. For they've healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they'd committed abomination? No, they weren't ashamed. They don't know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of punishment they shall be cast down. God is saying you're going to be invaded and overrun and other people will occupy your property and other people will carry away your wives and children as slaves. By the way, if verses 10 to 13 sound familiar, it's almost a word-for-word -word repeat of chapter 6, verses 12 to 15. Why does that happen? Scholars like to be scholarly about this and say, well, you know, through the years, Josiah preached many sermons, and he became accustomed to expressing certain thoughts certain ways. And so, you know, he, he found himself using the same words, the same, you know, kind of like you guys make fun of me and my, my Patrickisms that, you know, pop up on a regular basis, because I have my favorite ways of saying certain things. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Jesus did it. 
Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. He preaches the Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke. And you've got to look hard to figure out that it's two different sermons giving it at two different times to two different groups of people. Why? Because God wanted to say the same thing in a bunch of different times to a bunch of different people. Because God doesn't change. His judgment is consistent. He wants to get this message across. So verse 14, we start another section. Not another sermon necessarily, but another section. The voice shifts. It's no longer God speaking to the people of Judah. It's the people of Judah crying out. And you can tell immediately, why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves. Get your act together. Let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there. Shh, maybe they won't hear us. For the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us the water of gall to drink. Bitterness. Why? Because we've sinned against the Lord. So this is no longer God speaking about the people. This is the people speaking about themselves and speaking about their circumstances and speaking about how mean God is that he's allowing these circumstances. Verse 15, we looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and there was trouble instead. The snorting of his horses, the invading army, was heard from Dan all the way to the north. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones, for they've come and devoured the land and all that's in it, the city and those who dwell in it. What's happening here? Something else that scholars like to debate about, because scholars aren't happy unless they're debating. But what's the impetus, the, the, the catalyst of this outcry? Because this section begins right after the fall of Josiah, some speculate that maybe that's what just happened. Maybe that's what's being referenced. 608 BC, Josiah leads an army to Megiddo. Why? He wants to keep Pharaoh Necho and the Egyptian army from joining the Battle of Carchemish. Battle of Carchemish, that's, that's the showdown, that's the battle royal between Assyria, the OG empire, and Babylon, the new king on the block. And Jer Jer Josiah, for political reasons, is saying, I'm going to keep Egypt out of this. Well, he ends up getting killed. Egypt responds by marching on Judah and installing Jehoahaz as king, only to have Babylon, just a few months later, say, no, 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 you don't get Judah. And they roll in and install Jehoiakim as king. So take your pick. There's some invasion happening, and we really don't know which it is. Is it the Egyptian army coming? Is it the Babylonian army coming after the Egyptian army? We don't know. We also don't know if this is Jeremiah recording the words of the people as it happened. Is he writing down, a, 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 you know, is he live tweeting this? Or if this is God giving Jeremiah the words of the people, hey, this is what they're going to say. This is what's going to happen, and this is what the people are going to say in response. Whoever the enemy is, though, and, and whether this is history or prophecy, God takes the credit. Verse 17, Behold, I'll send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Lord. Now, this gets interesting. Serpents, vipers, figurative language, right, for an enemy army. This is just God being poetical. Or is it? Because serpents are also typical of Satan. But what if we extend the metaphor even further? Because 
Consider what God is saying. Is this maybe a reference to when the people rebelled in the wilderness? Because he's talking about them rebelling. He's talking about them turning away from God. He's talking about them worshiping, caring about themselves and their circumstances more than God. What happened, Numbers 21, when the people rebelled in the wilderness? They started to die because God sent serpents to, to bite them. They're complaining to God about everything. This manna is disgusting, God. God says, fiery serpents, people die. What happens next? People repent. And that's where Moses puts the, the snake on the, on the brass pole under God's instruction. And God says, you know, put the, put the serpent on the brass pole and tell everyone if they look at the serpent, they'll live. Foreshadowing Jesus, who became sin and was lifted up on a pole, and if we look at him, we live. But what does God say, verse 17? Or, or, or more to the point, what does he not say? He doesn't talk about any pole. There's no cure. There's no mercy. There's no rescue here. Why? Because there's no repentance. There's just going to be judgment. So whether we read verse 14 to 17 as historical or prophetical, we know Jeremiah is deeply affected by what he's hearing. Because these are really terrifying words. It's a stark picture of God's judgment. We know that he's moved deeply, either, either by what God shows him or by what he's looking at. Either way, he responds, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country is not the Lord in Zion, is not the king in her. Where is God? It's not for nothing they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. You can hear, this is ripping his heart out. And all the more so when he hears God's answer. We go from Jeremiah speaking to God speaking. (laughs) Where is God? Why have they provoked me to anger? Middle of verse 19, with their carved images, with foreign idols. The people agreed, God's people, the chosen people, agreed to worship him alone at Mount Sinai under Moses. They reaffirmed that covenant before they entered the land when Moses tagged off to Joshua. They were reminded of that covenant through prophet after prophet after prophet. What is God saying? Verse 19b, he's saying, I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. If people are wondering where I went, I'm where I always was. You're the ones who moved. You shouldn't be asking, where is God? You should be asking, where's my heart? that I've ended up so far from God. Verse 20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we're not saved. Yeah, because judgment has begun. This is back to the voice of the people. Even before these armies have arrived, even before these invading marauders have materialized, judgment's already underway. They've missed two harvests. The harvest is past, the summer is ended. So that's the wheat harvest of September and October, and then the summer harvest, the fruit harvest of April, May, June. Miss either one of them, it's hardship. Miss both of them, it's a crisis. Miss both of them, it's famine in the land, which they should have expected. Why? That's one of the consequences of disobedience that God spelled out before they even came into the land, back in Deuteronomy. God said, hey, 
when you turn for me, I'm going to dry up the clouds and there'll be famine. If you keep your heart hardened against me, there'll be invasion and you'll be carried off. Why are you surprised? God is wondering. But here we are. For the hurt of my people, I'm sorry, for the hurt of the daughter of my people, I'm hurt, verse 21. I'm mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Balm of Gilead. Gilead is a territory east of the Jordan, north of Moab, and it was famous for an ointment made from a tree when we don't know which tree, but it had healing properties. Why is there no healing? Why is there nothing we can put on this wound? Why is there nothing that will make this situation better? And God's answer is there, there, there is. There is healing balm. You're just not willing to apply it. Repentance would fix all of your problems, but you're not willing to go there. Chapter 9, verse 1. And actually, worth calling out, this is chapter 8, verse 23 in the Hebrew Bible. It's one of those places where the Hebrew Bible and the English Bible aren't perfectly aligned, and people debate about this. And I'm not a scholar, but I think that, I think that verse 1 fits with verse 2. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, the weeping prophet, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. People who disagree with me say, okay, you're just looking at verse 2 and saying, oh, it starts the same way. Oh, that I had in the wilderness. Oh, Patrick, you're, you're mesmerized by the parallelism. But, but keep reading. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers that I might leave my people and go from them, for they're all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Yeah, it, it, it sounds the same. It's a different heart, though. Verse 1 is compassion. Verse 2 is revulsion. Verse 1, it sounds like God wants to draw them close. Verse 2, it sounds like he wants to push them away. And, and so that's why some people take verse 1 and push it back into chapter 8. I don't see the conflict. I don't see the conflict with two contradictory, strong emotions existing side by side in a relationship. Because that's relationships, right? We, 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 we tell ourselves, oh, love and hate are opposites. No, they're not. The opposite of love is apathy. But I love you and I don't want to look at you right now. We've all had relationships where that's been true, right? I love you and you need to not be in the same room with me right now. And so I don't, I don't, I don't see the conflict there. What they have in common is strong, passionate feeling about what's happening to Judah. Why the strong feeling? Verse 3, they're like their bow, they've bent their tongues for lies. There's a, they're a bunch of lying liars who lie. They're not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone takes heed to his neighbor, and do not trust any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They've, been taught, they've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. This isn't just they don't know me. Because there's lots of people who don't know the Lord. And Paul tells us to be gracious. Paul tells us, hey, don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. Because what else are they going to act like? But this is different. 
Verses 3 through 6, they're liars. They slander each other. They lie to their friends. They work hard at learning how to lie better. This is more than not knowing God. End of verse 6, they're refusing to know God. They're offered the opportunity to know God. They reject it. They used to know God. They willfully forgot him. They're convinced they've got a better way than God. And God's response, verse 7, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I'll refine them and try them, for how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Should I not punish them for doing these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I remember listening to a pastor preaching a sermon on the, on the Ten Commandments, and when he got to don't bear false witness, he camped out and he made a big hairy deal out of, now that's not lying. Don't bear false witness isn't, isn't lying. It's a specific kind of swearing falsely. It's taking a false... And, and his whole message was, okay, the Ten Commandments don't mean what you think they mean. Don't take the Lord's name in vain doesn't mean don't cuss it. But the whole thing grieved me a little because, because I walked out and if I didn't know better, it sounded like he was saying, lying's okay. That's, there's no commandment against it. Okay, read passages like this if you're not clear on what God thinks about lying. Verse 10, I'll take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling place of the wilderness a lamentation because they're burned up. See, so that no one can pass through, nor can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the birds in the heaven and the beasts have fled. They're gone. I'll make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I'll make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Verse 10, it's hard to know who's speaking, but verse 11, there's no confusion. This is God speaking words of judgment. And again, we have an explanation. Verse 12, who's the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he might declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so no one can pass through? Answer, because they've forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it. But they've walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'll feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them the water of gall to drink. I'll scatter them also among the Gentiles whom neither they nor their fathers have known and I'll send a sword after them until I've consumed them. Again, who's the enemy? Who's going to invade? Who's going to care? Historically, I get why it's something that, that theologians or biblical historians want to quibble over. Is it the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians? If you read this, there's nothing that keeps us from reading it as long-term prophecy. Could this be describing the invasion um, under Titus in 70 AD? Sure. Could this be the, the invasion under Antichrist, yet future? Okay. But that's a little bit like reading a medical journal about a revolutionary kind of surgery and asking yourself, what kind of scalpel did they use? I'm sure someone somewhere is interested in that. But most people are going to say, tell me about the cancer. Where did it come from? And why did it require such radical treatment? And could it have been treated sooner? Could it have been prevented? We can get hung up on, on the historicity of this. 
But the, the, the more important consideration, rather than who is the invader, why is the invasion happening? And God doesn't go more than a few verses without reminding us the unfaithfulness, the unbelief, the pride of the people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 17, Consider and call for the mourning women that they might come and sell. Send for skillful wailing women that they might come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes might run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered. We're greatly ashamed because we've forsaken the land, because we've been cast out of our dwellings. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing. And everyone her neighbor, a lamentation, for death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces to kill off the children, no longer to be outside, and the young men no longer on the streets. Speak, thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of the men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. Throughout Scripture, we see in various places reference to this, to, to, to us, a very strange custom to hire professional mourners at a funeral. It even happens in some places of the world today, especially in the Middle East. People will, will hire professional mourners to wail and lament and make emotional ruckus at a funeral. And what God is saying here in this last passage, that's going to be appropriate really soon. Book them now. Get your reservations in early because they're going to be in high demand. In fact, there's going to be so much death, he says. They're going to be in such high demand. There won't be enough professional mourners to go around. Verse 20 and 21, God says, You know what? You who are professional mourners, teach your kids the family business because you're not going to be able to stop death. You're not going to be able to keep it out. You can lock the door. It'll come in through the window. In verse 22, he, he concludes, not only will there not be enough mourners to mourn the dead, there won't be enough able-bodied men left to bury them. And we're going to pause here because I, I, I know that I said last week I thought we would take through chapter 10, but there's something I want to I spend a couple minutes talking about, and I don't want to rush it. First of all, let's just step back and acknowledge, this is sobering stuff, Right? Sober and convicting, depressing, distressing, painful, hard to read. This is, this is ugly. I think I, I, I shared at the beginning of our study several weeks ago when we started Jeremiah, I remember being a part of a church that went through Jeremiah on Sunday mornings 20 years ago or so. A lot of people dropped out. Just, just stopped coming to church. And... You know, when, when you'd see him at the store or, or call him and say, hey, haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, I don't want to come to church to hear about death and wrath and judgment and sorrow and bodies rotting in the streets. I don't come to church to hear about death. And I always wanted to say the whole reason we come to church is to celebrate a death. Jesus. It was disappointing on a lot of levels. Um... But it was, it's disappointing because if we read Jeremiah and we only see judgment and we only see famine and we only see armies and we only see death, we're not looking hard enough. We're not listening carefully enough. We're not reading closely enough. There's a lot of death and gore and, and, and judgment and a lot of vivid description. 
I mean, can't pretend not. But that's not all there is. And, and if you scroll back to chapter 8, verse 21, I want to read a part of our text again because there's something lurking here that I think is worth not overlooking. Chapter 8, verse 21. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I'm hurt. I'm mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Question. Who's talking there? Throughout the, the last couple chapters tonight, we've, we've paused a bunch of times. Oh, this is Jeremiah talking to the people. Oh, this is the people talking to Jeremiah. Oh, this is history. Oh, this is prophecy. Uh, that's good, and that's fine, and that's helpful. But look at verse 21 again. Let me, let me read it in, in, the, in the New, new, uh, new International. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Every once in a while, the NIV just says things really well. Who's speaking? It, it, it's easy to assume Jeremiah, but yeah, I think it's just as possible this is God. It wouldn't be the only place he says things like this. Jeremiah 6, you don't have to turn there. Jeremiah 6, verse 8 similar kind of a prophetic, kind of a judgmental, sort of a, I'll leave a remnant so that you have some who escape the sword among the nations when you're scattered through the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where you're carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me. We read things like that from time to time in Scripture, don't we? God not just pronouncing judgment, but talking about how the need to, how, about the, how the circumstances that necessitate it grieve him. Certainly we see it in the New Testament. Going through Isaiah, how many times did we turn and read Jesus, what? Weeping over Jerusalem weeping over the judgment he knew was coming. Easy to see it in the New Testament, but we see it in the Old Testament as well. Does anyone doubt that verse 21 could be God speaking? It wouldn't be inaccurate. It wouldn't be out of character. So verse 22 could be God lamenting, why don't they take advantage of the healing that I've offered? Why don't they repent? chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Same expression as, as we read it in verse 22, for the daughter of my people. God takes no delight, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Surely he grieves at the judgment his justice Demands, verse 2. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they're all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Is there part of God that didn't want to watch what he was going to have to do to Judah? Well, did the father turn his face from Jesus 
as he poured out wrath upon him on the cross. And God's going to pour out wrath. Verse 7, I'll refine them and try them for all the reasons, because they're lying liars that lie. But notice, I'll refine them and try them for how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? End of verse 9, shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Notice the two ideas side by side. On the one hand, we saw this last week, God is calling them a nation. That's how God refers to the Gentiles. It's like I don't even know you. It's like you're not even my people anymore. You're just like one of the nations doing the stuff that that the unwashed Philistines do. But he's still at the beginning there, verse 7, still calls them the daughter of my people. Chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 22. The daughter of my people. There's still a kinship there, an identity there. And, and I think it's still God speaking, verse 10. I'll take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation, because they're burned up, because judgment is poured out. It's God speaking in verse 9, and it's God speaking in verse 11. I'll make Jerusalem a heap of ruins. I think it would be strange if it wasn't God speaking in verse 10, weeping and wailing. I think he is, and I think it's important that we notice that. Yeah, we read verse over verse, chapter over chapter through Jeremiah. There's wrath, and there's reasons for the wrath. There's judgment, and there's explanations why the judgment is necessary and righteous. But righteous isn't all God is. And just isn't everything he is. He's also merciful, or we wouldn't be here. He's also compassionate. God feels. He's not detached. He's not impersonal. Our sin hurts God. And the loss of relationship our sin causes grieves God. And when we're unwilling to repent, that angers God, yes. Undeniably. If we didn't know it when we started, Jeremiah, we certainly know by now. Unwillingness to repent angers God, but it also disappoints God. And it also saddens God. Not because it diminishes him, he's perfect unto himself, but because, get this, because he won't have the opportunity to bless us the same way. Because he won't have the opportunity to have fellowship with us and to see us enjoy fellowship with him the same way. Not in this life, and if we never repent, not in eternity. God of the Old Testament is angry and vengeful and vindictive. Oh, read harder. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we look harder, what comes through more than anything? God is God who cares enormously. God is God who feels deeply. God is God who loves tremendously even when his people don't love him back. Lord, we worship you tonight. And and we try to understand how you're so many things at the same time. Because you are wrath, but you are grace. You are justice, but you are mercy. 
you are huge, but you're all also intimate and personal. Continue, Lord. Continue revealing yourself to us that we might worship you more fully and that we might surrender to you more completely. In your name, amen.